I want this to be a book not about cancer or even motherhood, but about becoming. Unless we are dead, we are in a state of becoming. And even then, perhaps becoming is another way of saying surrendering. What you just heard was today's guest, Harriet Alida Lai, reading a paragraph from her most recent book, Natural Killer. This is Sasha Shaw, and you're listening to Dear Seekers. Natural Killer is an intimate and powerful memoir where Harriet explores her journey of being diagnosed with a form of leukemia at age of 15. To give you a little bit background about this cancer, it's called Natural Killer. The average survival time of patients with this diagnosis is 58 days, and there are no known survivors except Harriet. It's almost like a given blessing to have this illness, so she could be the one to tell this uniquely important story. Originally, this book was set to be published this month with a lunch party at a Glaston hotel. I was actually really looking forward to it, but as we all know, the world we are living in right now has been turned upside down with so many uncertainties and changes. So it's understandably that this book won't be published on schedule. But what you can do right now is to pre-order her book on Amazon, Indigo Chapter, or from any independent bookstore. The link will be on our website at dearseekers.com, alongside the photographs from this home visit. Prior to her memoir *Natural Killer*, Harriet published her first fiction, *The Honey Farm*, and as a freelance writer. Her work has been published in the Global Mail, the National Post, and the Happy Reader, which was actually where I came across her work. This conversation with Harriet is quite thought-provoking. We explore the idea of motherhood and creative freedom, how becoming and surrendering can coexist, and how her pregnancy with her beautiful son Arlo was the catalyst to this memoir. In such a strange and uncertain time, I hope this conversation will bring you joy, comfort, and inspiration. And I really appreciate it if you can take a second to leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcast. Your support truly means a lot to us. I guess I asked you this question already. In your book, you talk about this is the hipster mansion. Yes, and now I'm in there.、Um, You're in the hipster mansion. <laughs> I don't see any hipster vibe, but I don't know. <laughs> no, well, there were three young men living here. <laughs> That's really cool. How long have you been living here for? I've been here for almost two years, but my partner Cal has been here for about ten years. Oh wow! Yeah. So this home, I guess, start feeling like home to you now. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely home. Although I wonder where, at what point. It doesn't feel like you're just like playing house. Right, <laughs> I feel、right. like a lot of the time there's a difference between when I walk into like my parents' home、mm-hmm. or like 
older people's home. I'm like, this is your home. But also because we don't own this place, there's a lot we would change if we were able to. Mm. Like the electricity isn't to code and a bunch of stuff is just like all old and raggedy, but we are just renting it from Cal's aunt. So we're not going to spend thousands of dollars to fix it all up. I mean, home is such an interesting concept. Even your book, you mentioned that you talked to a therapist one time mm-hmm. and you expressed that your biggest fear is being homeless. Yes. You know, that the first time I ever heard anybody would say that. Oh, That's really? their biggest fear. Oh, wow. Because that seems like pretty far away from possibility. Yeah. Although I've spoken with a couple of people who definitely feel the same, even though it's equally far from possibility for them. But I think that, like, as I wrote in my book, the home is a representation of yourself and a representation of security and identity and stability. And if you're afraid of instability and insecurity in any other aspect of your life, then it can become represented in your home. Mm -hmm. And I left home at 18 to go to university really far away. And my parents had left their home country when they were in their mid twenties, they got married and moved to Canada from England. And so I moved away at 18 and then I I moved to Halifax. And then after that, I moved to Paris and I spent eight years in Europe and I spent a summer in New York and lived in Amsterdam, but mostly it was Paris. And once I left home, I didn't really live in another apartment or place that felt like a permanent home for a very, very long time. There was one place that it was like my home with a partner in Paris and we had a beautiful home, but it was still a rental and there's always an insecurity, like maybe the landlord will want to sell it or want to move back or whatever. And I think that my life has been very transitional for a long time. In all of those places, it was, yeah, like rental apartments with roommates and you're sort of always wondering when you'll have to leave and where you'll go next. And even being an immigrant in Paris, like in the expat community, there's always the question of like, how long have you been here and how long are you going to stay? Mm. Most people don't assume that you'll stay there forever. Although some people do, but most don't, uh, at least in the English expat community that I was a part of. It's a transitional space. So Mm. this is the first place that I've lived that is like, okay, well, I have a dog, two dogs and a baby. Like we're going to be here for a while. And that feels really nice. Mm-hmm. But also like those insecurities are still sort of present because as I said, we don't own it and there's things that we would do differently. And, right. and what's your biggest fear now? Is it still being homeless? No, I don't think it is being homeless anymore. Although like that's still a concern in a general sense. Like what if the aunt wants to sell the house? Like mm-hmm. it's a practical right. concern. It's not necessarily an existential fear anymore though. Mm-hmm. So I think that something's shifted there. So kind of drive back to in the past two years, you've Mm -hmm. been really busy. Yes. (laughs) You debuted your first novel. Yeah. And then you had a baby. Yeah. Became mother. um, And then you can actually release your second book this year. Yes. So obviously you didn't write the two books in within the two years. But I wonder what's the process differently from the first to the second because the first book was a novel, mm-hmm. um, even though before we start a conversation, you kind of corrected me, not necessarily a psychological thriller, as a lot of critique or commentary has mentioned, but kind of like put it into that category. Mm-hmm. And the second one is a memoir Yes, that we all know when you write about memoir, you have to go through a lot of uh, self-discovery and then dig out a lot of memories. Mm-hmm. So can you share a little bit more what's the 
difference between the two books in sure. terms of creative process? I feel like my creative process has a lot of latent period uh, as a necessity. And so The Honey Farm took several years. That was the novel. I started it, took a long break from it, returned to it, worked on other projects, blasted through a first draft in three months, took a year break, went back to it, had many friends look at it. So the process, I felt like I was just making it more and more of itself from the beginning, like plot points changed, character names changed, the ending drastically changed like pretty late in the game. And then once I got editors associated with it, small changes happened then too, both on a line edit level, definitely, but also on a slightly more global scale, like my American editor would say things like, I think that we need a little bit more of this character's maternal side in the second half, things like that, that are less specific. But then this book, my memoir, Natural Killer, it's largely about the leukemia that I had at 15. And I started writing about that, like shortly after, like it in high school, I had a blog and like a live journal. And I would write about that because it was obviously top of mind. I went through this incredibly dramatic thing and was still afraid that I would not live because remission is tenuous and relapse is almost inevitable in many cases. So I was always sort of living in the fear of that shadow, but I would write about it. And also my parents kept journals and my cousin made a website for me. So there was like live action writing happening at the time. I would write for my friends and family on this mm. forum and be like, kind of up- this update, update them. Yeah. In a way. Update them in live. Mm. Like I had an x-ray today and I could see my IV line in it and yeah. stuff like that. And that's a uh, pre Facebook. Yes. This was 2002. Right, so right, right. pre, like it was before I was even really on email. Mm. I had an email account, but nobody really used it. Right. I was also in grade nine. So my life and my ways of communicating and the people I communicated with was very mm-hmm. different. So there was real time writing happening about my illness and my experience. And many of those writings are woven into the book, my parents' texts, like updates and my updates. And I also this year went through my medical records or like in doctors and nurses and psychologists reports are also incorporated into the book. But so the process was much more of like a collaging in that sense. But I had been spending a long time like just trying to think about this, what it meant and how it happened and what it meant to me all throughout my life in addition to what it meant to me then. So I'd started trying to write it as a novel and then I tried to write it as a memoir and I kind of want to stop you here for a Mm, bit. Yeah, sure. Because you talk about you try to write it as a fiction, Mm -hmm. and then you try to write it as a memoir. Yeah. And in reading the book, actually, I found something interesting. Yeah. Because you talk about writing as nonfiction. Yeah. You almost kind of like surrender to this event. Surrendering is also a very interesting theme in your book. Mm -hmm. That you talk about surrendering, becoming. Mm -hmm. Um. So kind of want to dive into that. Even though that in my note, I wanted to talk about it later. Yeah. Since you mentioned about this kind of back and forth debate within yourself, should you write about as a fiction or mm-hmm. should you write about as a memoir? Totally. Can you tell us a little bit more there? Sure. Before I do that, I just want to finish answering your question about mm-hmm. how the process was different. And right. the final thought on that is that the book didn't catalyze for me as a book, even though I'd been working on the nonfiction version of it for about a year. Mm-hmm. It didn't catalyze until I got pregnant. And then the story seemed to me to click, it became a story that was not just about me anymore, because I was really reluctant to write a book that was just about me. And 
it didn't feel larger than myself. My story didn't feel universal, even though many people had read it and thought that it was. For me, it took the pregnancy to have a sort of shift in perspective and look back on my time as a daughter, as well as like from my parents' perspective and as an independent teenager. So Mm. it took the pregnancy for me to feel like the process was one that I was ready to push forward in. Mm. Um, And then in terms of surrendering, yeah, I think that writing fiction, writing is a way of controlling the narrative, right? When you're writing a story, you're in control. But in fiction, you invent the whole world. You can invent details. You can make up everything. And writing it as nonfiction is, I found it liberating to surrender myself to the truth of the narrative. And I found it more of a cathartic experience and more of a relief to feel like I just have to write what happened. I don't have to make it up. Mm. And So I was surrendering to the narrative, I was surrendering to the truth, and I was sort of letting go of control in a way. Mm, Wow. I actually want to read about this paragraph. Mm -hmm. Um, I found it very beautiful. If you can just read read this, yeah, just two sentences for us. I want this to be a book not about cancer or even motherhood, but about becoming. Unless we are dead, we are in a state of becoming. And even then, perhaps becoming is another way of saying surrendering. That's beautiful. Thank you. Personally, I would never thought becoming and surrendering could be in one sentence Mm -hmm. to describe something so coexisting. Right. But reading this paragraph actually resonates so much. Mm. But I cannot wrap my head around to articulate this. Right. So can you tell us what, what does it mean to becoming is to maybe surrendering? In one way, and like, I'm really glad that I wrote this book when I did because my feelings were so strong and articulate then. I wrote this while I was pregnant. And so that was written while I was pregnant. And I'm sure I meant something different then. But what I think of now mm-hmm. is about pregnancy. And maybe then I was writing about illness, but I think that they're related in that there's only so much you can do. Like the body is kind of doing its own thing. When you're pregnant, you don't really have to think about growing a baby, you're surrendering to nature. Mm. We obsess as a society over pregnant women's bodies and what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. And you shouldn't exercise, you shouldn't take a hot bath, you shouldn't eat this type of cheese, and you should be relaxing and you should be like, we still are trying to control women's bodies. But women have been growing and delivering babies forever. So you can just sort of surrender to the inevitability of that. And there's a relief in that. And so surrendering fully allows you to become fully, I think. Yeah, because that was my question as well. At first reading the book, obviously, I thought it was about cancer, mm-hmm. about your journey. It is. Story. Yeah, it is still. But then I kind of shifted a little bit, thought was more focused on motherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I kind of shifted again. It was becoming yeah. something, yeah. Or someone. So what do you think you were becoming then? And what, what are you becoming now? As a 15-year-old having chemotherapy for cancer, I was becoming a healthy person, but I was also becoming a woman. I had like pretty much just gone through puberty. I was in the beginning of high school. You're in the very beginning of your life, hopefully. But for many people, obviously, that would have been the end of their lives. So I was in the process of becoming myself. But I also think that I was already myself. So like I was growing into a young woman and I was figuring 
that all out. And then that was sort of halted because I was sick for so long. I was in the hospital for six full months and I was really, really ill for about nine months. So on either end of that and would continue to be like I had an IV for many months after that, a permanent IV in my body so that I could continue to get the drugs that I was on. But I was really focused on just becoming well. Mm -hmm. And then in pregnancy, I was in the process of becoming a mother. Like that's a very literal state of becoming. And it's nice that you get nine months to sort of like become that. Mm -hmm. And obviously you're not a mother until, or I mean, you can be a mother at many points in your life, but when you give birth to the baby, that's a very different thing than pregnancy. And I think that now that I have a child, I'm really differently aware of the transitional nature of life. People are always like, oh, it's just a phase. It's just a stage. It's just a transition. And I feel like they say that in a way that reduces the truth of these moments. Like if your baby is crying, not sleeping well, or like being really fussy or whatever it is, they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's just a stage. But I feel like that doesn't honor the moment. And it feels like you're just sort of skipping ahead. And Mm -hmm. people also often say if someone like, is in a difficult period of their life that that's transitional. And it is, of course, like the death of a family member or the loss of a job or the beginning of a new job or the beginning of a new project. These are periods of transition. But I just think that life is always going to be in transition. There's Mm -hmm. no final state that we're working towards. And if there is, then that's death because Mm -hmm. that's the final state, right? But in your book, you even talk about after death. Yeah. It could becoming something as well. That's true. Your body is becoming mm-hmm. new matter. Yeah. Yeah. Wishing away is so poetic. Yeah. yeah. Is that an idea you still hold on to? The idea of becoming after death? Mm-hmm. Um, I try not to think about it too much, to be honest. Death, like you asked what my biggest fear is, and I do think that death has always been a fear, but since having a child, it's like a greater fear for me because I just don't ever want him to die and I don't ever want to die because I just want to be around him all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the book, you talk about being a mother, mm-hmm. especially during pregnancy, is having a singular kind of purpose, yes, which has become really peaceful. Yeah. So I actually also feel exactly the way it is, but I couldn't find a word to describe it. I didn't mm. know that was peace. I was mm. really indifferent, almost a numb to mm. an extent, but I was okay with it in a way that was really strange to me because I've always been a person is go, 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 what's mm-hmm. next? Yeah. And, and so I peace was something I never experienced till just now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it, I talk about life modeling in the book and how peaceful I found that experience of being painted. And I guess it's kind of similar to being pregnant. Like, and I write about that too. When you're being painted, you just have to lie there and something's happening. You can just be relaxing and your body's being made into art. And the same with being pregnant. You can just be like laying on the couch, watching TV and let growing some lungs Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like strengthening some bones. Uh, And so much is happening inside of your body that it's just kind of mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Now you are a mother. Mm -hmm. Um, Is something have surprised you along the way that you didn't expect about yourself? Um, I think that I'm surprised by how much I enjoy it. In The Honey Farm, my novel, the character, Sylvia, the main character, she experiences like a prenatal and postpartum anxiety and it borders on psychosis. Like I would say it's pretty like her pregnancy leads to a huge dissociative experience for her. The birth increases that and there's a lot of anxiety and 
in the book, her circumstances are not helping that. And they're definitely manipulating her experience to make it worse. But I think that it seems very intuitive to me that when a woman gives birth to a child, like there's a dissociative element because you're just a different person and you don't even really know this person yet. And all of a sudden you have to love them and care about them forever. And that seems really intuitive to me. And I was really expecting to feel a little bit of dissociative, like sadness. And I was worried about the like baby blues as they call it. Um, and I was really relieved that I didn't feel that. I felt extreme worry, of course, but I felt a kind of instant sense of self. And I'm grateful for that because I don't think it's the, it's, it's not a given for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of women probably felt um, a little bit almost lost something because they've been growing this yeah. life in their body for nine months. Yeah. And then now almost lost a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing I'm kind of not worrying a sense to that extent. Right. But I was wondering if it's something that could happen to me. Yeah. Um, so after you give birth, that single purpose, obviously, now it's raising this yeah. human and to love this human. But did you also add it more purpose to your life then? Or yes. you still wanted to use that as the single purpose? Um, Because um, your life is all of a sudden insanely busy. And uh, it gets busier. Like in the first couple months, I didn't feel very busy. I felt very exhausted because you're having to wake up all the time to mm-hmm. feed this thing. But... Now I have to like, yeah, chase a toddler around and (laughs) uh, feed him and entertain him and take him out and carry him down the stairs and carry the stroller around. And there's much more busyness there. Mm -hmm. And also like continue to work and have my own life. A friend of mine is a poet and just published a poem that I read yesterday. And there's a line saying, I think it's to give life is to be left. Mm. Because if you're the person who's giving birth, like pushing a child out of your body, that child is leaving you. But also as they grow up, they'll go off and go to school and make friends and leave you. And there's like this heartbreak to parenthood that mm. I experience like many times a day. Many times a day already. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Tell me more. <laughs> um, just the feeling that like every time he's the most happy in the world to just see me. Mm-hmm. Like if I've go and get him after a nap or like I've left him with my parents to babysit him for a while and he sees me and it's just like the happiest thing in the world. It makes me the happiest person in the world. But I know that eventually that won't be the case. And just mm-hmm. thinking about that breaks my heart. So it's not necessarily what's happening. No, It's kind no. of predicting what might happen in the future. Yes. And then kind of compare to what you're having right now. Yeah. And in the book, I talk about like the asymmetry of love that children and parents have. And I think right now, like babies experience love in a very different way than adults do. And he definitely experiences love and he loves me and his dad, Cal, like a ton. But, and I think that we, we love him more by nature Mm -hmm. and we always will. And especially as he gets older, oh, mom, (laughs) you know, (laughs) those teenager years. (laughs) Yeah. Or even like the three-year-old years or whatever. Yeah. Cause I remember that sentence, um, paraphrase a little bit here, but I remember you mentioned it was the child can never love their mom or parents the way they love them. Yes. So it's almost like a little bit, depressing in a way and it makes me feel bad for my parents because Mm -hmm. i'm sure that they like it's given me more compassion for parents Mm -hmm. uh, because i know that they love 
so much, but they also have had to give up control and surrender to this, whatever this child wants to be and do. Right. And as a writer, as a creative person, how you balance between kind of juggling between these two roles, because I feel like being a mother, there's a lot of like groundedness in this role. And being a creative, there's a lot of imagination. Do you have kind of like pull yourself back to play one role or these two roles can mingle together? I don't agree with those definitions of the separation. I think that a parent is very imaginative and I have to be very practical, of course, like, okay, he's hungry or he's sleepy and I have to be home by this time. And there's a practicality to it all, but you also have to just like throw him on the bed and tickle him and like make the growls of a dinosaur <laughs> like, and <laughs> it'll just continue to get more. Like I get to revel in his imagination and play with him on his level. And uh, I think it's more of a time balance. Like I don't feel the roles as being separate. And actually I was, when I was pregnant and I got the book deal for this memoir, I had a like minor freak out because I think that society dictates that, like there's a lot of talk around the separation of motherhood and parenthood Mm. and creativity. And it seems as though people discuss it as a binary, you can only be one or the other. Like Sheila Hetty's book, Motherhood was very much like, well, I'm a writer, but so can I be a mother? Can I mm-hmm. give all this up and do that? Um, and she's debating it for so long and really feels worried that she'll lose her creative freedom. And in the end, that's sort of one of the reasons why she decides that that's not what she wants to do. Right. Like Rebecca Solnit talks a lot about it and Virginia Woolf never had children. And there's this sense that you can either be a mother or a creative person, but that's implying that you should be a mother at all. You don't have to. I think mm-hmm. that society, there's definitely a push towards that and a lot of pressure and women feel that pressure immensely. But by separating those two things in a binary, we're furthering the notion that women can't work because mm-hmm. my writing is work. It's not this like imaginary mantle that I put on my shoulders when I sit at my desk, right? Like it's a, and that's what Cal said. He's like, when I came home, like, oh my God, I can't be a writer and a mother. I like jinxed myself. Like I shouldn't <laughs> have gotten this book deal. He was like, like, no, like, of course you can be a writer mm-hmm. and a mother. Like my mom worked, your mom worked, like writing's your job. Um, it's just harder for me and I think many other people to prioritize creative work when there's no associative hourly wage, right? Mm-hmm. Like most of the time as a writer, I can't be like, okay, well, I'll get a babysitter like four days a week and I'll earn like twice that much because the time that I'll be writing will justify that. Right. Like there's no direct association between mm-hmm. time input and money output mm-hmm. with any creative process, unless you're in a very rare situation. And so I find it a little bit harder to justify the cost of childcare when I'm not sure that the work I'm doing will lead to the finances that would pay for it. That's what I find difficult. Mm-hmm. And have you find a way to somehow manage it? Well, he's still pretty young. So I'm just quit my day job, which I was excited to do. Been returning to work. At, what was your day job? Um, I was working at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection, a gallery just outside of Toronto. And I'm currently like on maternity leave from that job. And I didn't want to go back because if I was commuting and working, then yeah. I would not get any time to 
write or be with my kid. And like the daycare that he would be in would be like almost as much as my salary. So it just didn't seem oh, I know. worth it. It's crazy. Yeah. So yeah, like I have support from my parents and my partner's parents. And there's a great community spot that's opened up pretty recently where Arlo can play in the front space and it's like a co-working space for mm-hmm. parents in the back. So I still, it's still pretty hands-on. Like I'm the one who still has to change his diaper and I bring him home for his nap. But it's just amazing to have a little bit of freedom there. And of course, like my partner has a full-time job. I'm earning money from this book and I got a grant from the Canada Council and I do freelance projects. But it's still, I just personally find it hard to justify paying an hourly wage to somebody when I'm not earning an hourly wage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. I think that's something to justify like how much creative input in in the project. Because for your, yeah. your first book, you started seven years ago, right? Yeah. And then that was, of course, uh, on and off, but that yeah, was how I might you started. Yeah, I have childcare the whole time. Like, that's <laughs> <Yeah>. insane. <laughs> so definitely, I think a lot of practicality things that come into play yeah. and almost make it a little bit less poetic and dreamy, but at yes. the same time, it has to be talked. Yeah. Yeah. Even when my partner Cal was reading this book, he was like, oh my God, I hope she survives. But of course I survived because I'm sitting upstairs and eating breakfast in my bed or whatever. <laughs> like, So I think that even though the book is about a very difficult period where it wasn't sure that I would live mm-hmm. um, and I was expected to die, there's a real optimism just by nature of the fact that it exists. Like I yeah. lived and I was able to tell this story so even though there might be moments of like sadness and fear and even I sometimes read it and I'm like oh my god like this is really hard and sad but there's also this undercurrent of positivity throughout it that I was I was lucky enough to make it through that so Mm -hmm. I think that there I hope readers will draw like optimism and maybe even inspiration in their own circumstances if they're going through something hard Mm -hmm. and I also want to touch upon that because I that was in my note, but I forgot mm. to ask. I'm yeah. glad you mentioned it. It's about the word survived and lived. Yes. Because in your book, you mentioned that you didn't really think your circumstances actually contributed to or should be about survival. Yeah. You just think you lived. Yeah. So why why is that, you think? I think that there's just survivor and survival are very loaded terms. And not like survival of the fittest or it's a very scientific term as well. And it's factual. Like I did survive and like we survived the elements, we survive periods of darkness, we survived the winter, like whatever it is. But in terms of cancer survivor, it makes it feel like the people who didn't, it sort of put again, puts this binary that there's like the survivors. And then it almost seems like the failures Mm -hmm. who didn't make it through. And I just feel like that's such a terrible way of thinking about it or like you survived for a reason or like it's because of love or strength or bravery. I think that talking in those terms is really damaging to people who don't live through their illness and it's not. Despite having the bravery and love. Yeah. They had bravery and love and, and even if they didn't, like I wasn't brave all of the time, I'm sure. Um, I for sure wasn't. So it seems just hurtful and damaging to talk about it in those terms. I think lastly, I do want to talk about, you know, your book starting from 15 years old, Mm -hmm. you got sick. Can you tell me a little bit about before 15, your childhood? Sure. Do you remember those years? Yeah. 
I grew up in Richmond Hill to British parents, and I'm an only child. I read a lot. I made my own little games. What kind of games? Um, I would just like, I had friends who lived across the street and they'd be like playing chalk on their driveway together. And I'd be like playing chalk on my driveway by myself (laughs) and, um, reading as a kind of game and playing with my parents. And I had a ton of friends. I feel like as an only child, I was a little bit more motivated to make my own families. Obviously I have a great family, but when you don't have like permanent friends to play with all the time in your house, my parents really facilitated and supported like making family friends. So good friendships and lasting friendships with other families. And I'd play with their kids as though we were like cousins or also because they came from England. So we didn't have a ton of immediate family, like their siblings and parents were all still over in England. I was really, really shy growing up, like extremely shy. And then all of a sudden I wanted to be in acting and my mom was like, well, then I guess we'd better like if you want to be an actor, we should maybe put you in acting classes or something. So like I did a summer camp. How old um, were you at that time? I was probably 12 or something. And I was like, you can't take me there. I'm not going. And I like didn't <laughs> want to leave the car. And she, but like I had friends who were there and, and anyways, I loved it. And I still felt shy, but I like had a really good time. And then when it was time to go to high school, my mom encouraged me to apply to the performing arts section of the high school that was like a bit of a commute away, a magnet school, and rather than just go to my local high school. And I was like, I can't audition. That's so embarrassing. I'm like, like, I didn't want to go to the open house because I was just so like shy. And I did the audition and I like cried afterwards because I was so embarrassed. And then when I got in, I was shocked and I was really excited because it's what I wanted, but I was so like scared of following through on that. And then I just decided, like before school started, I was like, because it wasn't my local school, I didn't know everybody and I didn't know most of the people. Some of my friends from my elementary school were going to, but I just remember there was this moment where I was like, they don't know I'm shy. I can just pretend not to be. Mm-hmm. You can act. I can act. <laughs> and I feel like that sort of changed things. Mm. I'm still the same person and I'm still shy sometimes, but I do feel a lot more outgoing than I was when I was a child. And and you went to yeah. Paris for seven years to mm-hmm. live there. Yep. How did that happen? I was in university in Halifax. And after second year, like my roommate in second year was, was applying for an international exchange in France. And I was like, well, if you're doing that, I want to do that. But I was in English. And so th- I couldn't really do an English exchange in France because that is difficult to find. You'd do a French exchange in France or like an art history exchange in France. But I found an American university and I got all of my credits like pre-approved for transfer. And I did a comparative literature courses because the American program is different and English literature in Canada. Like when you get an English degree, you can only study books that were originally written in English, Mm. which is, I really think, an oversight. Yeah, you have to read like Chaucer and medieval English and Renaissance romantic poetry. And it's just like, of course, there's some good literature there, but I would love to be able to read like Russian novels translated. And, Mm -hmm. And in Paris at my school there, the Russian 
literature course I did was taught by like the world's leading translator of Russian literature. And so his insights were so cool. And like the Spanish literature course I took was taught by someone who had like been friends with Julio Cortazar and like oh taught, goodness. like taught with Borges. And so like, it just felt a lot more connected. And I was like, Oh my God. And that's where I like in Paris being in that community, I also worked at Shakespeare and Company, the bookstore. And I was you lived like, in there too, right? I did live there later um, as a writer in residence when like, like I left my apartment and my relationship and I asked Sylvia, who runs the bookstore, like, can I live here for a little while while I figure out what's next and work on my work on the honey farm. So I finished the honey farm there. But it was in Paris where I really felt like I could be a writer, like I could make a living of it. Not like I didn't expect to make a living of it, but I've been lucky enough that I've been able to for quite a while. But just meeting people who were writers and had published books and were teaching writing and going like talking about books, it was very different from the community that I grew up in and even the university community where I didn't really see like a creative life within the academic institution. I didn't know novelists, like novelists didn't teach me about Chaucer, right? Like it was academics who taught. Like, yeah, I met young people who wanted to be writers and people who were like starting magazines and stuff like that. And and you had your own magazine too. Yeah, yeah. I started it once I got back from Paris. So when I came back to Halifax to finish my degree after my third year, again, with that same sort of confidence, like they don't know I'm not shy. I was like, they don't know I can't publish a magazine, so I'll just do it. <laughs> um, and I did, I did it for many years and it was like a huge learning experience and it really created a community for me. And I think it created a community for other people too. But I got to meet writers and artists and I organized these really fun launch parties where people would do readings and play music and have little art projects. And it was really fun and people would come to them and meet each other. And I loved it. And it also got to challenge my editorial brain and I would read pieces differently thinking about how I might be able to make suggestions to make them better. And almost all of the time, the writers were like, oh my God, thank you. Like, I love these suggestions. They make it a better piece. And Mm -hmm. it helped me look at my own work with a bit more of an editor's eye. So like turning on, because to be a writer, you need to be an editor. You have to edit your own work. Otherwise, it's going to be terrible. (laughs) (laughs) So you can just write and rely on editors to help you polish it. Unless you pay them, no. Like editors now aren't going to take a first draft and make it better. Most people's first draft are not the works that get published. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of changing and shaping. And that's sort of what I mean about that latency period. Um, You need to let it sit and then look back at it as a reader. Because then you're like, oh, as a writer, I meant to say this. But as a reader, I'm not interpreting that. Mm -hmm. So how do I edit that so that my message is coming across clearly? Right. And I did read about even I told you I I haven't read uh, The Honey Farm, but a lot of people talking about the ending Mm -hmm. was something they didn't expect. But on the other hand, you felt like it was clear. So if you could go back, will you change the ending then? Even though I I don't know what the ending is without reviewing or spoiling what the ending is. Um. I don't think that I realized how important closure is for readers. I don't think it's important for me as a reader or even a viewer. Like I love movies where there's a like dramatic suspenseful ending and you're like, oh my God. And like, you're debating what happened. It leaves the story in your head and you're like, I'm sure that it was this or I'm sure that it was that. I love that kind of thing. Like Martha Marcy May Marlene is a film that does that to amazing success and even Black Swan. I think the metaphor is more clear there, but it's still like up for interpretation. And 
but the sound of my voice was another really cool like art house movie done written produced and directed by a young woman that has a really like confusing and abrupt ending that leaves you thinking about it but i think that readers the vast majority of readers just want to be guided through ideally want it to be happy because they're like why did i invest all this time if Mm. it's not going to be a happy ending and i think i understand that now in a way that i didn't then so for me the ending was good and was exactly what i wanted and did what I as a writer wanted to do and what I as a reader want to read. Dan Levy, who does Shit's Creek, he, mm. I love Shit's Creek. I think it's amazing. And he said, like, they're doing the final season now. And he's like, people just want to know that everything's going to be fine and that the people that they love are going to be fine and happy. And the ending of The Honey Farm is too ambiguous for some, but I, I know that everything's going to be okay. But I didn't guide people to the point where they'll know everything's going to be okay. Mm. So I think that I would actually go back and change. All right. So one last question about the honey farm. You actually saw the movie, right? Yes. So do you know uh, about the ending? Are they going to change it when the movie is going to come out? We're in the early stages of all of that still, but a writer has been hired and the producers are working on it. I think we're going to do like a location scout in the summer, which is going to be fun. Yeah. But a film is definitely a translation of a book. And I am totally open to many changes happening. And I think that from some early treatment I read of the script, I know that there will be some changes and many of them I was really supportive of and think that it makes like just slightly more a succinct understanding of the story because you obviously have to cut so much out. There were some ways in which they wanted to make really dramatic changes that I was not okay with. Not because I don't want it to be changed, but because I don't want the message of the story to be all that different. I don't want it to be like telling a totally different story. Many things will be different. And I'm not sure about the ending because it's not, we're not there yet, but mm-hmm. we'll see. Well, I'm looking forward to read it and watch it. Yeah, thanks. Um, and thank you so much for coming on board on Dear Seekers. Thank you. I had so much fun. Me too. It was and really great to talk to you. Thanks for your question. Thank you. And now it's on to the All right, thank you for lending your ears today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please take a second to leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcast. I hope you are well and safe. Until we meet again, keep seeking.